This is Glenn Crooks, and welcome to On Frame. I'm the radio voice of New York City FC, and I also cover the club for Pro Soccer USA. This weekly program, it's New York City-centric with a touch of any interesting domestic or international stories as well. And one of note this week is FC Cincinnati kicking off its expansion season in MLS with four points from three matches and an exhilarating home opener last weekend. DJ Schweitzer writes about the 24th club in MLS for Pro Soccer USA, and he'll be joining us later to provide all the background of this new club and their surprising start to the season. Also later, the Wall Street Journal refers to Katiun Koshwayar as starting a women's soccer revolution in the Middle East, specifically Iran. From the recent She Believes Summit in Manhattan, the story of a woman raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and now the head coach of the U-19 Iranian women's soccer team. So this girl came from the Kurdistan region of Iran, and her father at the age of 10 was going to sell her for $40,000 to a man to get married. And um, because I took that from him, uh, this is where it kind of, uh, I, I learned a lot about the cultural side, the different cultures that, that are in the country. That's coming up in our final segment. First, New York City FC. While showing improvement in each of their contests this season, the Pigeons have only managed three points from three matches, all draws, including the recent 2-2 result against LAFC at Yankee Stadium. City was unable to maintain a pair of leads in that match, with Carlos Vela equalizing on both occasions his second and third goals of the season. Midfielder Alex Ring had New York City's second goal. He leads the club with two goals. The uh, more likely candidate to top City's scoring as the season progresses did get his first, the Romanian Javinko, Alexandru Matrica. He opened the scoring. It's his first MLS goal. He had two in the preseason as well. And if you look at all the finishes, they developed in identical ways, driving in from the left wing, moving the ball to his favored right foot, and then the explosive shot. After the match against LAFC Matriza, he was matter-of-fact about his first goal in the Bronx. He paid a lot of money for me and I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be here and I want to score uh, a lot of goals. This is my, my job to, to help the team and uh, to win. If come, uh, come another player who, who can help the team, it's okay for, for us. Head coach Dolme Tarra has made the point that Matriza should not be considered a like-for-like -like replacement for David Villa, that supporters should not expect him to score 25 or 30 goals. Hence, the need for another goal scorer. And Tarra has said multiple times publicly, and to me, for Pro Soccer USA, the club needs a natural striker. I was able to confirm on Wednesday with a club source in Croatia that Brazilian forward Aber. He'll be joining New York City FC. His transfer from the Croatian top-tier club Rijeka is complete. And now it's uh, just visa paperwork, which could take up to a week, I'm told. That story is now up on Pro Soccer USA with some more detail. But according to Transfer Market, Aber has played left wing Matriza's spot in all 17 matches this season for Rijeka. And the last time he played as a striker... July 29, 2017. In his last three seasons, Aber has 32 goals and eight assists from the left wing position, two goals, no assists as a center forward. That doesn't mean he can't play at striker. He's 5'11", has a strong frame. Those are just the recent statistics. Other news for New York City FC, 
Ten players were selected for international duty, including Americans Sean Johnson and Jonathan Lewis for the senior team, Keaton Parks for the U23s with former NYCFC coach Jason Kreiss, and Juan Pablo Torres. He'll join Tab Ramos and the U20s. Look out for a story in Pro Soccer USA that I'm going to have some fun with. What the starting 11 and bench would look like if City had a match this weekend. Down 10 players. Well, 10 other MLS teams do play during this quote-unquote international break. You could argue that the top story in MLS this week is not Wayne Rooney's hat trick, but FC Cincinnati, the expansion franchise. They're currently sixth in the 12-team Eastern Conference. One win, one draw, one loss, and a point ahead of 7th place in New York City. That win came last week in their home opener, over 32,000 at Nippert Stadium. And many of you probably saw that picture that went viral on social media, the march to the stadium. Uh, really remarkable. Now, a guy who's been in the midst of this uh, FC Cincy mania covers the team for Pro Soccer USA. Uh, he is the founder of the Wrong Side of the Pond, and he's been around the club for a while. DJ Schweitzer. DJ, what's happening? Not much, Glenn. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. I, I, before we get into the story, why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Because uh, you're, you're part of the emotion of all this being from that area, and you also have a little bit of a history with the club. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I'm a, a more or less Cincinnati native, moved here when I was five years old. My family's from the area. I grew up playing in, in uh, the Cincinnati and Dayton area as well. And have been really ingrained in the scene ever since. Uh, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, I founded Wrong Side of Pond uh, 10 years ago, uh, actually, this June. As kind of just a hobby that kind of slowly expanded into what eventually became a job. And uh, eventually that landed me a position with SC Cincinnati during their first season in USL. I was actually the person who broke the news that the club was coming. Uh, also broke the news that John Harks was coming. So I'm a little bit on the side that the club probably hired me to shut me up to a certain extent. <laughs> uh, but that said, uh, for the first three years that the club was in USL, I was the club's uh, director of communications and eventually took on graphic design and supporter relations as well. Uh, so played a, a pretty large part in the, the first few years. And now I'm reporting on the team. Uh, once again, now that I'm back in the journalism side of things. Well, and I just discovered when I uh, reached out to connect with you for the interview that you actually created the logo of On Frame. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So Alicia, uh, our editor over at uh, Pro Soccer USA, reached out to me and said, hey, we've got a, a new podcast that Glenn Crooks is launching and wanted to know if you might be interested in it, given that you have some background in graphic design. And I absolutely was. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to report that you guys like it. So um, I'm not I'm too shabby. Massively impressed, DJ. Well, look, let's. how did this happen so quickly? I mean, you, you figure you talked about Harks coming in in 2016. I mean, here you are, 2016 USL, an expansion MLS side in 2019. The club is, is, is very young. How did it happen? I, I wish there was an easy answer as to why we are where we are today. Um, and it's funny, if you go back just a little bit before the launch of the team, I was actually working for the old NPSL team here in town, the Cincinnati Saints. And we were getting crowds of about 150 on a good night. And the, the talk when FC Cincinnati first started kind of coming into the, the background of, of the Cincinnati soccer scene was, 
they were aiming for 10,000 fans a game. They had MLS ambitions. And for those of us who had worked in the game for so long here in Cincinnati, we all kind of laughed at the proposition because it seemed so far-fetched given the kind of dodgy history that we'd had with professional soccer here in Cincinnati. So once the club was founded, I think some things that we eventually found out were very influential in its rise. And uh, the first of those is the ownership group that was actually behind it. Uh, Carl Lindner III, who is the majority owner of the club, as well as several other very prominent wealthy families from Cincinnati were all involved. And their involvement really made not just the soccer community sit up here in Cincinnati, but also the, the sporting community in general. Uh, when the Linders get involved with things in Cincinnati, it's usually a very big deal. And they dragged along some legitimacy that soccer had never really had in town, despite the best efforts and intentions of those of us who've been involved in the past. So I think if we had to finger one particular thing as the, the driving force and the initial buy-in, it was probably the Linders' involvement. But if I had to point to something else, it was probably the fuel for the fire. It's absolutely the way the city's supporters have launched up and turned this club into a phenomenon that's really caught the attention of people, not just in Ohio and Cincinnati, but also across the country and the world. Now, did this happen organically? I mean, how exactly do you go from anticipating 10,000 to having 30,000 at a game in a USL uh, match? I mean, all kinds of attendance records broken uh, at Nippert Stadium, the 104-year-old Nippert Stadium on the campus of the University of Cincinnati. But it, what that groundswell of interest, uh, you're in the community. What happened there? Yeah, so I think we've had what I would consider the perfect series of events unfold for FC Cincinnati end up in these kind of record-breaking, at least in the USL uh, perspective, attendances that they've had over the last few years. And that going into that very first game, I was with the club at that point, and we had, had optimistically aimed for 10,000, and we pretty quickly found out that we were going to exceed that, but the question was by how much. And that first game, we roped in about 14,500 people and had a, a tremendous result, a 2-1 win over the Charlotte Independence, uh, very emphatic goals, one from one of the hometown heroes, uh, Austin Berry, formerly of Philadelphia Union and Chicago Fire. Um, and that really was the perfect launching point. It, it gave us a lot of momentum um, and, and really put the club into the mindset and the consciousness of the Cincinnati sports fan, not just the Cincinnati soccer fan. And from there, it just kind of snowballed. Every match after that, we would see a raise in attendance. It went from 14,000 to 16,000 to then 20,000. And then suddenly we were, you know, we hosted Crystal Palace the very first season in MLS and 35,000 turned out for that game. And I think that was the point where we said, wow, this thing is, is really a movement that is going to potentially sustain itself if we just don't get in its way. All right. Well, the, we talked about uh, the March and we're with DJ Schweitzer, who covers FC Cincinnati for Pro Soccer USA, among other things. The March, we saw the picture, but I saw in one of your stories that you, you posted some video from 2017. So uh, regarding this March of, of thousands. So this is not a, a new event for the supporters. No. So the, the March is actually a part of the match day experience since the very first match here at FC Cincinnati. And what it really started off was was about a crowd of about 150 to 200 people that 
start at some of the neighboring bars around the University of Cincinnati campus. And the two largest main supporter groups would meet up in one spot and then they would march on the stadium. And then they actually march within the stadium after they get through the security gates. And this has kind of become one of the phenomenons that I think has been really important in Cincinnati sports scene to, to make the club a little bit more than just something beyond the soccer community. We don't have anything like this, obviously, with the Cincinnati Reds or the Cincinnati Bengals or the UC or, or Xavier University as well. And it, it really provided the Cincinnati sports scene with a, a brand new, unique experience to buy into. And the march, while smaller at first, uh, and we were very impressed with it at the time, uh, very quickly ballooned. And when we got into the, the tremendous Open Cup run that SC Cincinnati went on uh, during the 2017 USL season where they made it all the way to the semifinals, defeating uh, Chicago Fire and the Columbus Crew, both at Nippert's. Um, that's where the march really became its own separate draw in some respects. And we were seeing crowds of 500, 600 people join in. And the one that we saw for the MLS home opener this past Sunday is by far the largest one that we've seen. Uh, the, the picture that you actually have seen kind of floating around is about two and a half city blocks. And it really is a, an awe-inspiring sight to someone who's been here for a long time. Uh, that, that's something you would have never imagined would have been possible five years ago. And yet, here we are. Hey, DJ, were you at all in that crowd, or did you observe it? Where, where were you when this was all taking place, or did you have to be inside the stadium already? Unfortunately, I was already tied to my computer as lineups were nearing release uh, for this weekend's march. Uh, but I've absolutely been involved in it um, as a part of my supporter relations role with the club in the past and, and the social media work that I did for the team. I often recorded it. The, the video that I posted from 2017 is one that I had recorded. Uh, and as it turns out, my, my family is a big soccer family as well. And uh, my daughters, uh, both five and three, absolutely love the march. So when I have a chance to get down to it, I, I absolutely try to do so. All right, let's talk about the season. I, you, you look at the first three matches. You open uh, in Seattle, lose 4-1, and everybody's saying, eh, an expansion team, They're, you know, these are going to be the struggles. And then you go to Mercedes-Benz. You know, open the season at Seattle and then at Mercedes-Benz, two of the more uh, difficult environments to play in. At Mercedes-Benz against the defending MLS Cup champions, a 1-1 draw, and then this 3-0 win in the home opener against Portland, the MLS Cup finalists. So it's really been an impressive start to the season. Yeah, absolutely. If you had told me uh, prior to the start of the season that FC Cincinnati would be sitting on seven points, or excuse me, not seven points, uh, four points out of those first um, three games, I, I probably would have laughed at the, the concept of it, mainly because of what we all saw going into the season. A lot of USL players coming up, uh, several kind of unknown players coming in from overseas, and just a, a patchwork, some really well-known, solid players from MLS, and some less well-known players coming over in the expansion drafts and acquisitions. So we all kind of went in thinking, mm, you know, th this team could get some results, but we weren't exactly surprised when we saw that one four loss battering uh, out in Seattle. Uh, but things really kind of turned on their head in Atlanta. And the team has really made strides in each match, showing improvement, gelling together. Uh, and it's really coming together in a way that a lot of us hadn't expected. And you look at the next two matches on the schedule, and there you have a match during the international break at New England coming up this Sunday. And then the following week, you host Philadelphia in your second home game. So it's not inconceivable that you get maybe 
Four more points. Here's what we're looking at now after this great start. Now it's like, well, we should uh, get the tie on the road and the win at home. And, and here you are sitting uh, in, in playoff position in the Eastern Conference. It could happen. Yeah, absolutely. It could happen. Um, I do think the international break is going to present a, a real challenge for FC Cincinnati. Uh, several very prominent players are going to be missing. Uh, Kendall Waston and Alan Cruz, the Costa Ricans, will both be out. Uh, both of them were on the score sheet against Portland this past weekend. Um, and I would say that they're probably the most vital missing pieces that are out there. But they're going to be missing a couple other ones, too. And it's really going to force this club to dip into uh, the reserves that they have at their disposal. And that's where we're going to start seeing some of this exposure from the USL players uh, in a way that we haven't quite yet in the first few matches. And we'll, we'll see what this team's actually made of. Uh, that said, I, I think they absolutely will have a, a possible... Uh, chance against Philadelphia for the following home match. So, look, at, at this point, given what we've had the last f couple games, I wouldn't be shocked at all if they were sitting with, with eight points following uh, the next the next couple. All right, Kendall Waston scoring the historical first home goal in the 15th minute against Portland last week. And, well, another guy, Fernando Adi. Uh, what a match that must have been for him, the uh, longtime striker for uh, the Portland Timbers, now going up against his old club. So what was that like for him? Yeah, so you know, unfortunately for Adi, he went down just before halftime with an injury, and we're still kind of waiting to see uh, what that means for him longer term uh, in the season. But that said, I think Adi was definitely – a player who was very amped up about the match, uh, along with Alvis Powell, who also is a, a former Portland Timber as well. These are guys that were highly motivated, and, and the rest of the squad as well, very much so going into this home opener. So lots of ties that made this a little bit more of an emotional affair. But you have to remember, too, Adi's also been a little vocal about what the team is lacking and what he thinks they need uh, coming into the match. And when he went down, it actually looked like the team improved a little bit uh, as they brought in Darren Maddox, who, who kind of changed up and, and brought a different style of play up top. So uh, it's an interesting kind of situation that's going on right now as this team is trying to find its feet offensively um, despite the, the early season positives. Well, the guy making those uh, moves, the manager, Alan Koch, and when you look at uh, his resume, doesn't have a massive head coaching background, a couple of college programs, the Vancouver Whitecaps, too. He was their very first manager before taking over at Cincinnati in 2017, the USL Coach of the Year in 18. So what do we know about Alan Koch? So as you mentioned, this Alan doesn't have a ton of professional head coaching experience, although he is very well versed uh, in leading teams, as you mentioned, both at the USL level uh, as well as in the college ranks. And Alan's very much a, a determined type of coach who has a, a very clear mindset in the way he likes to play. His teams are defensively solid. Uh, build up from the back that look to try to counter quickly. And that's what we've kind of seen out of this FC Cincinnati side. Uh, and when they've been effective so far has been mainly off of counterattacks. Um, so not all that surprising given what type of you know performances he's put in and systems he's rolled out in the past. But he is a bit of a question mark. And <clears throat> make no mistake, much like the rest of the team, he's finding his feet in, in a new league uh, that's a little bit more difficult in the past. But I think given uh, the results over the first couple matches, he's off to a pretty positive start. You know, and, and what the young managers sometimes struggle with is coaching the, the big player, the star player, which uh, I guess in this case, Adi uh, leads the way there. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the nice thing that Alan had working for him was that he had a, a preview of what it would be like to work with Adi and to integrate him into the system and the culture of the club. Uh, coming in midway through last season in an acquisition 
uh, for the, the rest of the USL season, uh, Adi was able to kind of get in and, and he and Alan have built up a better rapport um, to, to understand what each other needs. So I think it definitely helped to get a, a player like him in early to help kind of integrate things a little bit more uh, smoothly. All right. Uh, finally, uh, DJ, what's your forecast for the team as it moves ahead in its first MLS season? Uh, I always wonder, uh, with an expansion side like this, uh, do a few injuries do them in? What does it look like? Yeah, so it's it's definitely a, a question mark for, for everyone right now. As we talked about, going into the season, looking at the way the team was constructed, everyone was a little concerned that this might be a team that would compete for the, the wooden spoon, the worst record in MLS. Um, would they be another Minnesota United who brought up a, a sizable chunk? Uh, there are comparisons to Orlando as well f- with their promotion up from the USL. Um, so we all kind of went into the season saying, well, you know, they, they've got some talent in their team, but we aren't going to have high expectations and maybe the playoffs would be the bar. I still think that qualifying for the playoffs will be the bar that this team will be judged by. But the results they've had over the last week, two weeks, have really changed the way that a lot of people are starting to think about it, myself included. And uh, I, I think this team is going to get some results that are going to surprise us. And I think they're also going to have some games where they look like an expansion side. So uh, I would say, you know, if they can make the playoffs, that's probably uh, a, a, a fantastic first season in MLS. All right. DJ Schweitzer, go find his wrong side of the pond. He is also the uh, writer for Pro Soccer USA covering FC Cincinnati. And and thank you so much for the on-frame logo. Wonderful, DJ. Okay. Hey, I'm uh, glad to contribute, Glenn, and thanks so much for having me on. Next, a woman who had opportunities to attend Texas A&M, UCLA, and other universities of that ilk, but instead moved to Tehran at the age of 17 to play for the Iranian national team. Katayun Koshwayar is now 30 years old and the head coach of the Iranian U19 national team and so much more. She was a panelist at the She Believes Summit in New York City recently, the focus, empowering female athletes. I was fortunate to spend a few minutes with Katayun, who grew up in the U.S. and played for her state team in Oklahoma. A remarkable story. From Tulsa, Oklahoma to Tehran, I mean, here you are, a young lady who uh, is born and raised in the Midwest, and then something happened. We know your grandparents. Uh, there was a visit, and then things really, your life changed, yes? Yes. Um, so being raised in the Midwest and, um, you know, having the opportunity to, you know, be born and raised in the U.S., you know, brings a lot of uh, amazing things. And um, the summer before my senior year, I decided to take a quick trip to Tehran just to, you know, see the country where my family's from, see the country where my grandparents are from, and to understand, you know, that stigma that people had about Iranians. So I wanted to be able to, to see it for myself. And yeah, one summer in 2005, I went to Tehran. And who knew that within two weeks, I would have fallen in love with the country, helped start women's soccer, and stay there and leave everything behind that I created in the US. Yeah, that was, it was rather brave. I mean, what really, uh, what really drew you to that decision? Because you, I, I know you had some possibilities on the collegiate level with some fantastic programs and schools. There, there was no um, question about me, you know, going uh, to, to collegiate level. This was something that we were working hard for. This is something that I was training for almost every single day. And I put that all aside because I felt like 
Iran needed me. The women of Iran needed me. Um, here I am, this young 17-year-old American girl that is in Iran, and you know I didn't believe, and I didn't want to believe that soccer is, does not exist there. So I decided to stay there for the women to help them, uh, you know, promote soccer, to get soccer started, and you know, hopefully be a soccer powerhouse in the region. Did you speak the language? I didn't speak anything. Uh, I just knew like a few words that you know got me by. But to be honest, my players—not uh, my players, but my my uh, what's it called? Teammates—they taught me words, but unfortunately, I couldn't say them in public. <laughs> <laughs> so you uh, have uh, talked about, and I've read about uh, when you got there. It was just futsal. It was small-sided futsal, which is a good training device. I would imagine you have some technical players. Yes, yeah, so futsal was a very new sport for me because it's indoors, five aside, and uh, no tackling, no, you know, nothing that you would do on, on football. But um, from there, I think because futsal was the only soccer or closely related game, a lot of women went towards that. But once football opened up, everyone shifted because that is a national sport. Everyone wants to be a soccer player, not a futsal player. <laughs> So, so here you are. You've uh, you've come from America to Tehran, where um, you know you wonder. I wonder, as an American, what was the acceptance level of the men in the population to the women playing soccer? So, 14 years ago, when I first moved there, um, if you say that you're a soccer player, they will turn around, give you the look, and be like, "What did you just say?" But now, because our futsal national team has won um, two Asian games, and I, I'm pretty sure if you see the videos of how technically um, perfect they are, and put it that way, you know we, we're gaining a lot of respect, and I think you know more men are wanting to get involved in the sport. So if you, if you tell me to compare 14 years ago to, to, to today, I see that's an upward, you know, um, upward uh, what's it called shift in the, the popularity and the acceptance and the support. And it can only get better from here, right? <laughs> well, that's what you would hope, because uh, there was a, a lot made of the fact that uh, women were permitted to enter the national stadium to view a men's match never before or never within the last 40 years right. when the new regime uh, entered in 1979 uh, it's a big deal and but it was a it was a video match it wasn't a live match you uh, so but but talk during about that experience during okay. the world cup okay. the the match against spain i believe right. uh, so were you in the stadium personally i was actually in Russia for the World Cup, so I, I was there with all my fellow Iranians supporting the national team. But when we talk about inside the country, the Azadi Stadium, I think the first prominent step that we took was to have everyone come to the national stadium and to view it um, on the on the projectors there. The next step was the Iran versus Bolivia game and that's where 300 women who were um, involved in sports uh, were invited to go and then the third time that such a thing happened was uh, for the, the Asian Championship League so it was you know Purse Police a big team from Iran versus another team from uh, Japan and you know women were they had the access to come in and you know I think the public public loved it and the world loved it too. <laughs> yeah, and so those were live matches where right, the where yeah. the men were there. So the other so ones because the, the the live matches were in Russia, not in not in the at the stadium. Right. So and and you look at this as a as a real significant advancement then. To be honest, I think um, the the whole access to the stadium thing is not my priority. It's more of 
gaining popularity as far as the women who want to get involved in the sports. Uh, my job is to promote it. I, I'm promoting football, you know, from east, west, north, south of Iran, trying to get as many girls as possible involved in that sport. And then the stadium is, you know, when I have time, I will start my negotiating and, you know, arguing tactics with whoever I have to talk to. But um, the first thing for me is to, you know, build a team, build a strong team and make it to the World Cup. So I'm interested in your scouting. You're the U19 national coach. Uh, well, first, I would like to congratulate you. As you're the first Middle Eastern woman, I believe the way I saw it, to, uh, to and earn, and youngest? <laughs> okay, to earn a uh, FIFA A license. You were 26 at the time. So uh, this, uh, this coaching element uh, is something that gives you a chance to really stay with the game. Exactly, and this is why I put playing aside because I felt like as a coach I had a larger platform to um, to express myself on, and you know to promote it even more. So for me to be to find girls, obviously we don't have football academies or football schools in the country. So I literally just tra like, travel to a random city. I go to a park and I usually look for the girl that's playing with her brothers, cousins, or father, or beating boys up. Those are the players that I look for, and I you know talk to them, convince their parents, and bring them back to Tehran for the national team camp. I mean, this is how I, I'm doing it at the moment. And uh, I'm hoping that you know, once you know, sanctions are lifted and once we can get the proper funds from you know, a, lot of the, a lot of the programs that want to fund uh, these academies, I'll have a better chance of building stronger players at a very young age. I'm curious, uh, so you're, you're observing a, a, a kid play, a child play at a park, and they're with their brother and father. What is it like approaching her and them, what kind of reception do you get? So usually um, I ask if I can join and play. <laughs> And then whenever you shock them with the, you know, the style and the fact that you're an actual professional soccer player, I think that's where you know, the respect I, I gain wow. comes from. Yeah. So then they're like, oh, where are you from? Where do you play? So I, I give them my, a little bit of my background, and that's when you know, the whole questioning starts and me trying to say to them or convince them that you know, I'm the head coach of the national team, I'm looking for players, your daughter looks very suitable to you know, come for a tryout. Can I please take her to Tehran to the national team camp for a tryout? And, you know, little do you know, the whole family comes to Tehran and they get a hotel, everything, just to come and watch their daughter at, at trials. Wow. So do you, do you get a, a share amount of uh, uh, pushback too, though? I mean, where maybe the, the father is not uh, interested in, in his daughter's pursuit at something like this? So I've only had one negative experience. And this, um, so this girl came from the Kurdistan region of Iran. And her father, at the age of 10, was going to sell her for $40,000 to a man to get married. And um, because I took that from him, uh, this is where it kind of, uh, I, I learned a lot about the cultural side, the different cultures that, that are in the country. So once I, you know, I told him that once your daughter gets involved in soccer, she's going to play in the league, she's going to get paid, and, you know, she's going to be able to stand on her own two feet. He wasn't as reluctant as he was before. So now this daughter of his, you know, five, six years down the road, you know, she's playing the league, making her own money, you know, standing on her own two feet. So this was the only strange thing that I had to deal with, with like my American mindset, but I had yeah. to be very open to, you know, it's a cultural thing and it's very okay and accepted in the Kurdistan region of Iran. <laughs> Is there any anger in you at all sometimes where you know, you did. You had the American experience where women are accepted in so many different levels, and they're still fighting for equality on on, on, on many fronts. But it's such a, a different environment. I mean, you you, you see, uh, recently I read an article where a woman was interviewed and you know called herself a second-class citizen. So, is there 
Is that how, how difficult is that for you to deal with personally? You know, I think that you know my with the my American side and my Iranian side, we're both fighting for the same thing. That is not acceptance, but the fact that we are all fighting for the same thing. You know, we're fighting for medals, we're fighting for championships, we're fighting for all of these things that men also you know fight for, and. I think from you know my American uh, upbringing, I have that you know no fear attitude, and that's what the Iranians love about me is that I just move forward, and you know when you say no to me, I just take that as an opportunity to like turn that around to a yes. It might take a lot longer for some, and it might you know not take as long for others to convince them. But I really like my my American spirit as far as you know the, the, going for the challenges, and you know making sure that I can you know get what I want. <laughs> Did you find that useful, for instance, in your A license course? I'm sure it was you and a lot of men. Um, well, you know, this was, uh, I was being trained uh, via the Asian Football Confederation. So, you know, you had men from China, Japan, Korea, and, you know, all countries from all over Asia. And I was one of the very few women that was in the same course as all of these men. And at first they look at you as, you know, a weak you know, little lady wearing her hijab from Iran. So like they're being very like patient. And I'm like, no, 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 man. You know, we're going to play. We're going to play rough. We're going to tackle. We're going to do all of this. And I'm going to beat you in as many things I can beat you in, whether it's theory or practical. So I think with the, within the first like couple of hours or days, you know, men usually are looking at you as someone that not as educated in football, doesn't know how to play. And then you just have to prove them wrong. So as a woman, you just have to keep proving. <laughs> And you do it by playing in front of certain people. Exactly. I do it by playing. You uh, made a real interesting comment on the panel here and uh, at the She Believes mm -hmm. Summit uh, regarding the hijab and that not so much the fact that you ha have to wear it f for cultural reasons, mm -hmm. but that it's, it's kind of uncomfortable in certain situations. Can you just describe that a little bit? Okay. Because, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's different. From the observation, FIFA objected to it uh, during Olympic qualifying, a story you've told a, a number of times where you were actually told you couldn't play. How, how did it go that? You were disqualified? Yeah, the, the day of the game, we were on the, getting ready to go on the field to compete. The fourth official comes and tells us that we're disqualified, can't play, have to forfeit 3-0. But um, speaking about your question, you know, the, the whole hijab factor is not... It's not more. It's not the issue of that. Oh, it's holding you back from performance. It's more of because I, I thought maybe, maybe your vision. I, I don't know. I, I thought maybe it's not it, it covering affect the eyes. It's no. not covering the eyes. But it, even from here, you know, the peripheral. Yeah. So that's why it's a bit further back. So exactly okay. where you know your yeah. headline is, yeah. and it's really tight. So it's not like I mean, you can see. The only thing that I can tell you that is bothersome is honestly the material. Um, when you get on that field, when you have your national team country like on your chest, you don't care about what you're wearing, what you're not wearing. You just want to go and compete and play and win. Um, but to be honest, it's the material. The material is horrible. Um, you know, Iran is coming from a background that we're obviously sanctioned. You know, we don't have enough funds to be able to like make better material for these jerseys. And I'm hoping that this is something that I can do and uh, fix this problem. But as far as the the ease or the the complexity it's honestly the same i played with hijab and without hijab the only thing i can say that really bothers me is whenever you wear it and you have to go to like vietnam during like the summer and you're playing 110 115 degrees weather that's where it gets bothersome 
One final question, uh, and you mentioned you were in Russia at the time, but what was the reaction in the country as Iran defeats Morocco in the uh, first game of the group stage of the World Cup in Russia, and the, only their second win ever, the other was over the U.S. Right, right, right. So what, what was it, what, and did well in the group, four points, Spain, Portugal, really well. So um, I can actually show you live video and proof of we lit Iran on fire. Let me put it that way. We were so happy, so excited. You know, I don't think anyone slept for 24 hours, and you know, the the, the everyone was extremely happy. Like I haven't seen Iranians this happy in a long time. And you know, to show the fact that soccer plays such a big, you know, um, role in people's happiness, it's huge. So this can help the women. This can help the women. I. I we need to make sure that our level of football also rises and this only happens with the education and you know getting the, the proper adequate you know people to help coach us to become you know future world cup leaders but you know iran, iran football it's inseparable i mean you you sit there and you can talk about football from morning till evening it all depends on the mood of people like you know not to talk to someone because their team lost that day so it really plays a huge uh, effect on everything on in your entire lifestyle well, it's an amazing story. Katayun earning her master's degree in chemical engineering in the UK and now helping to change the course of a woman's place in athletics in a country where women are still not permitted to gather socially with men in public. One man especially respected her as a coach. The former Portuguese national coach, Carlos Queiroz, was prepared to bring her on as an assistant coach for the Iranian men's national team. However, after eight years with that program, Karosh stepped down in late January. He's now the manager of the Colombian national team. Well, that'll do it for On Frame, a new program each week. Please subscribe and give me your feedback. This is Glenn Crooks.